Your cabin number? 22. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowlane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We're at episode 155, back to Cole's Choice. What are we talking about today? We are talking about My 20th Century from 1989, and that is written and directed by Ildiko Yeti, and it stars Dorotha Segda, who is the voice of Bellatrix Lestrange in the Polish dubs of the Harry Potter films, along with Oleg Yankowski, Paulus Monker, Peter Anduraj, and Gabor Mate. It's about twin daughters, Dora and Lily, born in Budapest near the end of the 19th century. They are orphaned after their mother's death and take to selling matches on the street, Hans Christian Andersen style. And one night after falling asleep, they are split up, carried off by two well-to-do benefactors, quote unquote, beginning their paths down two very different roads. Now, one of the great things about movies, and it's something that I'm surprised we don't talk about very much, is simply how great they can look and what a unique medium it is. And this goes all the way back to the way they first captured our imagination in and around the time that this film is set. Can you imagine being there in that moment when still photos sprang to life for the first time? I think I would have uttered the same words that I did after I saw The Matrix. That (laughs) changed my life. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes I want to choose something that emphasizes the motion picture element of movies, and that is this. The quality of this photography is mesmerizing. I just cannot say enough about Tibor Mate's work here with the cinematography because the quality of that is integral to the success of this film even more than usual. And when I use the word quality, I mean that in two ways. One, I mean the actual technical proficiency and standard of excellence that's achieved. And then two, just the nature of it, the quality that it has, the way that it conveys something verbally inexpressible. The luminosity of this thing is just transcendent. Well, I think we can understand how this film won the golden camera Mm -hmm. in 1989 at Cannes. And there's something here that I want to mention as well that we sometimes talk about, not always. But to me, the very first thing that struck me with this film was the soundscape. Another integral element of modern films. This, to me, sounds like what I imagine light being born Hmm. sounds like. When I think about those trips to the planetarium or 321 Contact, you remember that show? Or when you went to the Pink Floyd laser light show. Probably. Same thing. It's the wonder of science and creation. I just adore this soundscape. There's one great example of that now that you mention that, that I'm thinking of. When Tesla is doing his experiment at the Sorbonne in Paris, that crackling Tesla coil sound, nothing says new, exciting science to me more than that sound effect. 
Now, I was totally unfamiliar with this film, and I've been thinking about this concept a bit lately, that specific period in my young film-going career. I have been noticing that my awareness and access to foreign films specifically was really shaped by what was allowed into the Oscars. Now, this missed being Hungary's submission, and I think maybe for other people like me who lived outside of big markets, that ended up limiting the general access to this film. You were 14 when this came out, give or take? Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so you would not have had as much access, say, in the position I was in when I was going off to college for the first time that same year, which is how I discovered it. But I totally understand what you're saying. I was in the exact same boat. I was in an even smaller place than you were growing up. And so that was definitely the case for me. We were in a small town and had to travel 20 miles to get to the nearest movie theater. And they only had the most mainstream fare except for the drive-ins. So whatever they booked was predicated on what was going to get the most attention and would sell the most tickets. Our little video store could only do so much to keep up with the things I was trying to dig around and find just that I'd read about, say, in Rolling Stone or Spin. Or for me, seeing on Siskel and Ebert. So yeah, it wasn't until I got away for college that I had regular access to these avenues of discovery. But I definitely remember specific instances of if it had not been for the Oscars, I wouldn't have heard about that, I don't think. Like Pele the Conqueror is the one that comes to mind immediately when I think of that. Cinema Paradiso mm -hmm. was a big one for me. So shall we get into the movie proper here? Yes, let's. I am in love with this thing right away because the opening credits look like they could be a Magic Lantern presentation was the first thing I thought. Is this the year that I finally get my own Magic Lantern? Should we build a new wing right now for hundreds of glass slides that need to be specially stored? You're going to have to ask Santa. <laughs> At any rate, it makes me feel like we are on the cusp of something magnificent. You can feel the electricity in the air as if it had just been invented. No one can possibly guess what is coming next, but it crackles with potential, I feel like. And it really puts me in the mood to be captivated by some brand new invention. And so, what better place to begin than Menlo Park, New Jersey, with this captivating display of light? It is like a fairy tale, like the stars say. This film is all about how much magic you can create with light. People had never seen anything so beautiful. To the point that the question is implied, can the stars compete with this sort of technology? Well, you know what it reminds me of, too? When we go for Christmas down to Johnson City to see the ginormous lights display. It's kind of like that. It's that feeling of well-being and excitement. Everybody is just so excited. Even the fear part has exhilaration in it more than anything. And I feel like with this technology, it's like we try to capture what we can't touch and we want to put it in a box. And then I think that's why forever after we see Thomas Edison in this film just being depressed because he feels like he did still fail. So I think the stars actually went out. And the other thing that this makes me think of and marvel at is the decision to use black and white film. Because when I think about communicating the quality of light, I think about light as being a color, yellow or blue. And so it's so amazing to see it captured so brilliantly here. And I do still think 
Technology can't quite do it fully justice, but it gets really close. Well, it would just seem to be the natural automatic choice for the type and time of the story that she's trying to tell here. Color just wouldn't be the same. Nothing else would do, it feels like to me. So you're right, the stars are eternal, but electricity is the marvel of the age. There's a bit of a luminescent ballet, which is a sequence I thought you were going to love going into this. It happens during Edison's light show, and the theremin being used for that part of the score is a really nice touch. Electricity can even make music. It does make me think, though, since you mentioned the fear part of things. I'm just assuming that I know how people felt when they were confronted with these innovations. I don't know that it's the same anymore. Is it just that technology moves so fast now and we're used to it that we don't encounter that same feeling that same way? Because I can't think of the last time that I saw a technological advancement and thought, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, or that it would change my life forever. The internet, I suppose, may have given me that feeling way back at the beginning when I was first getting on AOL and it seemed so limitless. But the internet obviously also has that Pandora's box element to it. So I assume there had to be people in 1880 that thought of electricity the same way. Well, I can tell you, I work with a lot of older people, much older populations, and working with them specifically with technology, and they constantly use the word scared or fear or terrified or I'm going to break something. They have this sense that something is going to go horribly wrong with this technology and I'm the key to it somehow. Interesting. Not so much what the technology can do, but how they are going to do it wrong. Yes. And I don't know if that comes from being from a different generation where if you did, in fact, mess with something mechanical, you could actually break it and, I don't know, destroy your barn, possibly. Wash your clothes in gasoline and set everything on fire. Because that was a thing. It was. Yes. <laughs> so then in terms of technological advancements, let me just quote Frankenstein's monster in this case and say, <laughs> fire bad. <laughs> it's true. Actually, all joking aside, I'm very much in the camp of Everything is a tool. It's just how you use that tool. Now, way back when, we did a mini episode on actuality films, and one of the short actuality films we watched was in Luna Park in Coney Island. Did that inspire you to choose my 20th century for the show, or was that just a happy coincidence? Based on what it looks like, you might think so, but it was a complete accident. But this does have some of those qualities, though. That sequence at Menlo Park here in the beginning could easily have a nonfiction counterpart like this. And then there's the geographical reach that I like actualities for. And in the beginning of this film, we travel the world in a very short time. Paris for Tesla's experiment. We're in Burma gathering bamboo for Edison. We're in Hamburg where they have that great line about thinking that Eastern Europe didn't really exist, that Shakespeare invented it. <laughs> yeah. This has one up on actualities for being able to squeeze in odd, clever jokes like that. The main place we travel to, though, is Budapest, and it's where a woman is giving birth. It's probably not the last time I'll say this, but I love Inyete's sense of humor. This woman is surprised by twins. And when I say surprised, I mean she produces one child and then takes a look around, looks down. Oh, here's another one. It's such a great little touch. And it's a very small thing, but I think it really lets you know where your head needs to be to appreciate this film. 
The twins, they are Lily and Dora. And again, it is like a fairy tale. In this case, very specifically, the little match girl. Because this is what they're doing to support themselves. They're orphaned, they're on the street selling matches. And at a pivotal point early on, the sisters are separated. Now, I assume, based on dress and manner, that these are both gentlemen of means and that the girls would each be raised in a comfortable, if not opulent, environment. I got the impression, like I said in the introduction, that they were acting as benefactors. I didn't read anything sinister into this. Did you feel that way about it? I also initially assumed they were well-to-do just based on dress. But really, without the cues that we have of the music, the donkey, the snow, these kids could have been taken into child labor or human trafficking. We don't know anything about these two characters of the benefactors, quote-unquote. Because I think, above all, Inyeri's intention is to keep us on our toes in an incredibly playful way. And she always keeps the meaning opaque. So we have all these separations and dualities. We don't know who these two characters were. We don't know where they go. And I don't think we're going to get a fix on that. So it seems like it's as much about the difference in how people who grew up a street apart can be motivated by completely different things. Which gets me to where I'm going here. So how did Dora and Lily end up so different? You had very specific ideas about nurture versus nature in our discussion of L'Argent. Is it the same here, or do you feel differently about how those forces come to bear in this case? I feel roughly the same, because I think both filmmakers, Bresson and Yenieri, are not about building incredibly huge backstories for their characters. She is insistent that she doesn't give us the true answer for anything. And we are going to hear throughout the film philosophical musings about the nature of the female, the nature of male. And to me, we take those to be incorrect. So I am falling once again on nurture. I think I'm swinging over a little more toward your side this time around than before. Well, you're correct because <laughs> I have it all. I've solved everything. We don't even have to discuss it further unless you want to. Well, of the two, as adults, we first meet Dora on the Orient Express, which I think is a kind of fascination of both of ours. We would love to travel on the Orient Express one day. Yes, it costs a billion dollars, so that <laughs> may be a way in the distance unless we get a mission like Lily's. It's the new year. It's a wonderful environment. She says she's always lucky. I really feel that to be true. She's in first class celebrating. And then in Austria, we first meet Lily the spy, who is the more demure one of the two, I would say. I've seen her described as timid, and I disagree with that. But she will be traveling third class, or less, cargo class, basically. And when this train pulls into the station, I'm just overwhelmed by how beautiful everything is. Dora's face in the train window, framed by that frost. The clock striking midnight. I love everyone's miniature celebrations and the passing of secrets that we see as the camera tracks past all these compartments. I don't know if it's the same for you, but New Year's is a very bittersweet holiday for me. I feel like there's a built-in note of melancholy to it, and I can't describe exactly where that comes from in me. But it's perfect for this narrative where it sits in history. Because this scene on the train, we are significantly moving toward the striking of the clock and ringing in a new year. 
and it's all a microcosm. It's a brilliant metaphor of the waning aristocracy in Hungary at this time, not realizing that they are having one last party as they are faced with the twin, get it, threats of the dissatisfied poor and working class rising up and then the looming specter of World War I as well. So this track that is carrying them, it leads them toward a change that is much larger than they can understand in their revelry. Because I don't know about you, but I definitely respond the most to the one image of the multiple people smushed up against the class. (laughs) These are the people in the cars that we would be riding in. And I love all of this fin de siècle touches everywhere that we see. It's such a beautiful period that's captured so well. But without any sort of gilding to it, it seems like it was beautiful and it was grimy at the same time. And we see both of those. So you mentioned at the top of the show picking this because it is such a great example of the beauty of the moving image. So Can you remember our last big feast for the eyes like this? If we're just talking about the show, I would probably say Black Narcissus. Would you agree? That is a great one, yes. That was back in November. And then just going back through my letterbox diary, The Man Who Planted Trees would be high up there. Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me. And then The Mad Fox, both of those toward the end of last year. And each one looking so incredibly different and playing with light in different ways. So we've now met both the grown-up, Dora and Lily, and I have to say, I love both of these characters. And Dorta Segda, she does an astonishing job at imbuing them with distinct, equally believable personalities. Even when they're sleeping, you can feel the difference, which I think is the thing that impressed me the most. Lily is so focused, but still a little frazzled, and then Dora couldn't give an icy look if her life depended on it. And there's a great moment, I think, that illustrates this so well. When they both arrive in Budapest, where Dora, flirting with the elevator operator, is juxtaposed with Lily memorizing the recipe for a bomb. She does an amazing job here. I like to think, if I saw them side by side, and I didn't have my head at my butt like their lover Z, (laughs) I would be able to tell which is which. Voice posture, movement. It's all totally different, which comes right back to nurture. Am I right? Are you saying Dora went to finishing school? Is that what you mean? (laughs) Well, I think there's something to this idea that we don't realize right away, at least I didn't, that she's actually kind of a con artist. She's not a poor little rich girl who's on her own, you know, socializing around Europe. It's totally different. So her finishing school was the school of the seven bells, basically. I think so. In the most fun possible way. Now, I know that you had to have made note of this when you were writing stuff down here. There was that shot of that little pup in the spotlight. This is right up our alley with so many fun and yet sad and interesting animal sequences. This is really an element of the film that I was taken by surprise the first time I saw it to have so many of these that the film was so dependent on. Because in the film, animals are very important to the story as representatives of the natural world and a counter to our progress, quote unquote. So we've got the dog, the donkey, the chimpanzee at the zoo. Yeah, exactly. We see this Pavlovian dog hooked up for his experiment and the stars in the sky are doing their thing, intervening 
and they show the dog movies. They screen some images for him, and it's a nice little nod to those things that cinema can show us about the greater world, our world at large, and how it can inspire us. In this case, it unlocks everything for this dog. It shows the joys and the dangers, and the dog ultimately breaks free and escapes to the countryside, I assume, from here on, living his best life. I would assume so, too. At least that's what I hope. I don't think Inyede would let us down. You say that, but it's countered by this sequence with the chimpanzee at the zoo, actually. And the chimp is telling the story about their capture, the moral of which is basically so much from my curiosity. That is true. But I do envision a world in which the chimp escapes as well. The chimp's going to pull one on everybody at some point. True. I've seen enough Pan and James to know that chimps can do anything. They can be firefighters. They're amazing. Yeah, he's going to find the dog. And they're going to join up and they're going to pull crimes, I think, but in lovable ways like stealing hot dogs. Well, so not once, but twice now, it's animals that are teaching us some of the most significant lessons in the movie. And then you have the completion of our animal trinity with the donkey leading the twins to their mother and then later back together in the finale. This savior slash messiah connection, I don't think can be overlooked because the whole thing starts with stars literally attempting to gain the attention of a wise man, that being Edison in this case, before directing us to the East for a modest and somewhat miraculous birth. And I don't think that that can be a coincidence. But then on a more secular level, I just love what Inyere has to say about the donkey. In general, the donkey is her favorite animal, and she said, I should like to be as wise and patient and peaceful and helpful to others in a simple way as the donkey is, but he is much better than me at the moment. Which is a sentiment that I can thoroughly relate to. As hard as it is to pull away from the animals, let's get back to our twins here. When Dora is visiting a sanitarium here, we have this curious shot of the egghead director of the sanitarium completely blocking our view of her. That is my single favorite shot in the film. He is so foregrounded to an extreme degree that it really amplifies the egocentricity and the pomposity of it. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I love Inyere's sense of humor. It's such a light touch. And I just want to clarify too, it's the back of his head. It's not like we're looking at his face or anything important like that. It's just his bald head obscuring everything. Yeah, when I say egghead, I literally mean a head that looks like an egg. Very true. But it's all part of this hilarious setup for another bit of thievery surrounding the delivery of some jewels. This elaborate scheme is extremely funny to me, if only for the specifics of the setup. She could have done this a dozen different ways, but she has the jeweler deliver the items that she's going to steal to this asylum and convinces the asylum director that the jeweler is her diamond-obsessed brother so that it's almost like a cartoon with her tiptoeing around through doors. And we get that cartoon feeling a few times, actually. For example, the bombs that Lily throws when she is out opposite Dora doing her thing, they are trademark cartoon bombs with their glossy, globular perfection and their fizzing wicks. I half expect the Beagle Boys from Scrooge McDuck to come running in. Or it could have Acme painted (laughs) on the side of it. And I don't mean that to be detrimental at all. I love cartoons and their unique logic. And this film has its own innate logic in a similar way. 
But I saw one particular reviewer reference the cartoon nature in kind of a dismissive way. And it just made me feel like they weren't willing to free up their imagination and that they must feel that serious subjects must always be treated soberly and with great reverence, which I completely disagree with. But do you think it's too disordered to be effective? At any point were you thinking, oh, if this was a more straightforward narrative, I would enjoy this more? A big fat nope with a huge <laughs> eye roll. You just have to give yourself over to the film, and that is what Inyete wants us to do, and that's what she does in her own viewing life. Watch it with a smile on your face. Go smack some people on the rump if you know them. Take a train trip. Don't throw any bombs unless they really deserve it. But truly, I don't know that this is necessarily a true examination of the forces at work at the turn of the century in Europe, anarchy, capitalism, whatever, and I don't need the answers to that. This is a delectable and exhilarating film. I think if you liked Jewel Robbery with William Powell that we've mentioned on the show, you're going to like this. Well, speaking of bombs, there's a huge metaphor here for me, for you, talking about going to see movies and enjoying them. The bomb that Lily throws, one of them, interrupts this public viewing that is set up with these multiple projectors. I love this shot of these multiple projectors. And given the film's preoccupation with modern advancements and the way that moves us into the future or the future being now, what do you make of this anachronistic inclusion of this helicopter footage in this bank of films? Because the first operational helicopter wasn't built until 1936. So why do you feel like it's in here? It made me think a lot of daisies, mm. by the way. I was just having a good time. I was more occupied with the presentation space and those beautiful stairs, the way they were painted. I just loved that. I think you're right when you say approach this without putting too much stock in a straightforward thing here. I feel like the playfulness of the footage is why it was included. It was almost like the helicopter was dancing on air. I agree. I don't think that we need to search necessarily for one-to-one -one metaphors for everything. And it does make nods to the early days of film in all sorts of ways, even down to the names of the girls being meant to invoke Dorothy and Lillian Gish. I also think it helps looking at Agnetti's career before this. So this was her first full-length feature film, her first non-short, her first non-experimental film. So I think she definitely comes from that world. Well, then it makes sense why she completely appeals to me in every way, both in terms of her execution and her philosophy. And speaking of philosophy, we have a big one coming up here. Lily attends what at first seems to be a suffrage-slash-equal rights lecture by Otto Weininger until it takes a hard right into Weininger's regressive proto-fascist stances on sex and gender roles. Yeah, this is just about the worst bait-and-switch. I showed up to get a free buffet and now you're trying to sell me a timeshare. All the same... Lily does not walk out of this thing. Why do you think that is? Because she's sitting here being accused of being amoral, which I wouldn't necessarily have much of a problem with if I was her, but also illogical to the point of being non-existent. This is where we come to my favorite character moment, the specifics of her not walking out, with that whole women's nature is entirely sexual, but men are still logical. That look on her face. I feel like that at some point every single day of my life about something, and I know you do too. My favorite ironic character touch here is Weininger's response and growing intensity as this goes on. 
Would you describe Weininger's response to this whole thing as maybe hysterical? I would. Good work there. He was a bit self-important in real life and high-strung, obviously, as when his book didn't take off the way that he thought it should, he shot himself at age 23. Did he succeed in taking his life? Not immediately. He shot himself in the chest and it took maybe over the course of a day for him to finally succumb to that, but he didn't last very long. Typical. (laughs) (laughs) Drama queen. I do really like the placement of this scene, I have to say. At first, it seems like a bit of a comic interlude, maybe, but then it becomes something larger. When you pull back and look at the larger theme of the 20th century being full of watershed moments, this takes on immense significance. We look at all these things like electric light, motion pictures, the telegraph, but right in the middle... The centerpiece here is concerned with the political and sexual agency of women. And it begs the question of unfulfilled promise. The same way with technology that we think we were promised there'd be flying cars by now, there is the personal and political analog of that. And it's a text metatext thing as well, because it's indicative of the way that this film successfully straddles wonder and disillusionment too. You mentioned it already. This Edison is the perfect embodiment of that. At one point after attending this lecture, Lily says to Z, the man who is involved with both her and Dora, though he doesn't know it, that chauvinist tyrants like you will be swept away. But the way she says it, and the way that I feel like she feels like she needs him a little bit as well, do you think she truly wants him to be swept away? Well, I want to come back to a couple of shots and stories that we've talked about already. There is the bald head in the sanitarium. There is the story that the chimp tells about being captured and raised in captivity, which reminds me of both girls. Maybe at this moment, she's also thinking about the man who quote unquote rescued her, the benefactor. You put that together with the lecture and Z is the only man around. He's the only man who's actually listening to her right now. So whether she's truly aiming at him or not, I don't know. But I do think, like you say, it's a compendium of all of these issues and feelings. And also, we know he can't tell the women apart, so he's kind of a chauvinist. One little note that I like here, too. I really enjoy the way this exchange, a lot of it takes place with a literal wall between them. And I think that detail may also be more significant to European viewers than Americans. We're not used to that. But this notion of this huge immovable barrier separating cultures is something that so many Europeans grew up with and have lived with for a huge part of their lives. And now in light of this lecture, I have to think about Dora too. She is always open to improving her situation, usually a romantic one, by whatever methods are convenient in the moment. Amoral? Certainly, I guess, by their definition. But that word doesn't carry any negative connotations for me. It's not immoral, it's just outside of the traditional moral framework, which is a fine, even preferable place to be in my estimation. And then when you consider Lily's willingness to commit violence in the name of revolution, we determine, in fact, they both are amoral. To me, practically a badge of honor. But is amoral how you characterize it? It didn't really occur to me either way, honestly. I didn't feel like I was seeking judgment on either of them, or that the film was either. It seems like Dora's got a pretty good gig. 
and she seems pretty satisfied with it. Neither of them have been reduced in their circumstances. The circumstances just keep rising. I think back way to the beginning when I had this assumption about Dora when she says, essentially, that she's well-traveled, she's been around. And I thought, oh, that's the socialite speaking. But both of them have these experiences and have traveled far and wide when you compare them to other women of their time. Well, speaking of amoral and referring back to our opening scene, this cabin seduction scene is super sexy, I thought. I don't know how you felt about it. It is a bundle of fun. Yeah, Dora can come to my cabin anytime. I love how much that she smiles and laughs while this is going on. And it goes beyond expressing having fun, I think. There's an air to it of, isn't this all ridiculous, that I find totally appealing. She's enjoying it and finding the absurdity in it simultaneously, just like life. And then there's a bit of mistaken identity after this first sexual encounter, which eventually leads Lily into bed with Z as well. It occurred to me at that moment, especially when we think back to A Room with a View, how comfortable we are seeing female nudity on screen. It's just a matter of course. There's something about this instance that feels slightly different to me, though, at least with Lily. I feel like she represents something so much greater that her nudity takes on a quality of being representative of all women in their most natural state in that instance. I see Dora's thing as being much more individual and personal, but Lily I see as the universal. Now, it's obvious how Dora feels about this, but does the sex satisfy or fortify Lily in any way? How do you think that she feels about it? Well, I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit in terms of Lily as the universal, because I think more than anything, she wants to be seen as a revolutionary, not a woman per se, not as representative of all women. But more an icon. I think of it actually take away the female gender more like a man or just simply a revolutionary who also happens to be a woman. Oh, so you're going to get all Otto Weininger over there? I don't know. Bear with me for just a second. (laughs) Because I see the sex as a means to an end, at least in one respect, and then just some fun. Because she is, according to Weininger, supposed to be inside this specific package, which is a woman. And she chafes against that. And she's told she's inherently sexual and illogical by nature. So then what does she actually get to be? Interesting then. So does this dissatisfaction that I feel a little bit telegraph her failure at terrorism? What do you make then if she is supposed to be more of a male figure or a genderless figure? How is that reflected in her impotence at actual revolution? Because it's more symbolic than effective at achieving its political aims. Her bombs don't strike their targets, or in fact, even go off in some cases. She makes art more than she makes revolution because look at that beautiful tableau of her failed revolutionary attempt. It's a wonderful scene, but it achieves little to nothing. I think that it is okay to not see her as a woman or a revolutionary or a man or whatever as a person in this instance. So maybe I should have said that. She wants to be seen as a person, not simply reduced down to being a woman. Because I think there are men in that situation who would also think twice while making direct eye contact with their potential target. Yeah, that's a lot different than when you're sitting around the cafe with the rest of the popular people's front when you have to look that person in the eye and throw that bomb. I think it again comes back to a testament to Segda that 
she has, as these two characters, the least amount of dialogue. We hear much more from the men than we do from her. And yet, I still feel that she's the center of the film. Or excuse me, I should say, they both are the center of the film. And I think it is pretty impressive that Inyete has made what I feel to be a feminist film, at least one that questions these roles, when you have the women with the least amount of dialogue of all the characters. I think it is incredibly effective to abstractly present their hopes and dreams rather than have some dialogue that might be too precious or too on the nose. Because these are ideas that are difficult to talk about without them being in danger of being talked to death. You look at some of Whit Stillman's work, for instance. Much lower stakes when it comes to it, and yet you talk about characters that need to can it with the chatter sometimes. I would much rather that you show me the interior life. Show me the wordless decision not to throw the bomb instead of chatting in a cafe forever. And I'm glad you specifically mentioned film as the medium here, too. I discovered something interesting when I was at work at the library shelving books the other day. And that's if it's a fiction narrative, especially a film, I'd give it more leeway, I discovered. If it's a contemporary literary memoir of the Oprah Book Club variety, for example, with similar themes of sexual awakening or quasi-spiritual quests, etc., I more often think, hey, easy with your self-congratulation on learning something that we all knew already. I'm not as charitable in those instances I've found. Instinctively, though, with films, when they're well done, it makes me much more open to these characters following those paths. So that means that the film of Eat, Pray, Love is your favorite movie. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) I'm not sure I totally agree with that either, at least from my standpoint. I've got a couple of recent cases in point, also from the library. Karen Slaughter is a pretty popular author, and she has this book, Pieces of Her. And the protagonist is 32 years old, and she is practically in a fetal position every moment of the story. Are these mystery thriller type things or is this something else? Yes, you nailed it. She's experiencing every single thing for the first time at 32. I want to punch her in her (laughs) damn face. So I guess I'm equally contemptuous of awakenings and quests in fiction or nonfiction. I think it's the time period that makes a difference. The time period and then based on what you're describing, just the ability to stand up and face whatever's coming. Yeah, these characters haven't done anything to make me contemptuous of them. To me, it seems like they're pretty dang cool because they're pushing very specific boundaries. And just as one example of that whole film affects me in a different way, we've got this finale here with nods to everything from Charlie Chaplin's The Circus to Orson Welles' The Lady from Shanghai because it ends in this house of mirrors. And Dora and Lily finally find each other again, and then I think Z finding them together in this particular environment leaves the door open a little bit for it to not quite be real to him. If he'd run into them both in the street or at a cafe, it would ground it so much in the real world that he would have to deal with this right then. But with things in the air like this, with this unreal sort of environment, the film asks him, which woman do you think you'd be happier with? Now, I think... The most important element of this question for him is that he is able to reconcile that two people with disparate characters can easily be housed in what he thought was one body. So, do you think 
This is more about what he wants. Is this some revolutionary interpretation of the Madonna whore complex? You've got a socialist in the sheets and an anarchist in the streets. Is it just that his perception is so clouded by sex? Or is it greater than that? Is it more that we contain multitudes? It's a big duh on both counts. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking that, yes, it's more about not a person, but a thing that's a projection of him, of what he wants. And like you said, I phrased it more like capitalism, meaning more, meaning everything, just not anarchy. Capitalism in the sense of consumption? Is that the connotation? Yes. Consumption, the abundance, the quantity, all of it. So, as it often is in life, he wants both, he gets neither. Which is more broadly, metaphorically representative of everything that we're talking about here. Because I mentioned, I like this portrayal of Edison as sad and dissatisfied, and it's indicative of this tinge of disappointment that suffuses everything here. I have to wonder, how much of that is rooted in Hungary 1989, as opposed to Hungary 1903. That's a long time in a culture for things to feel suspended and to have not turned out like we thought they would. I think you're definitely onto something with that. And even for me, as I've mentioned, not being aware of this film in the way that I would have with films that came afterwards, I think if this film came out in, say, 1995, it would have a bigger place in the overall film canon. Not just in Hungary, where it's one of the 12 best Hungarian films of all time. I think it was a little bit too early for, say, those people who naysay it for being too disordered. I don't think they were ready for it. And especially I don't think they were necessarily as ready for the female-driven story here, that place in time. Well, interestingly, we've spent a lot of time lately, it feels like, at the turn of the century, with stories that are concerned with women driving the tale. In our last couple of episodes and recommendations, it's popped up a lot. It's always fun to see how these things arise, either consciously or otherwise, because I certainly was not thinking about relating this to the Edwardian England of a room with a view when I picked this five months ago for the show. And we talked about some of the other things that we saw in it right after this viewing. You had a number of things that you felt it related directly to. I saw touches of Fassbender and World on a Wire. You mentioned Daisy's once already. I thought of that too, if it was about twins. Celine and Julie go boating, obviously. From my last 16 choices, going back to Daisy's, I looked at it. I addressed this theme of duality or being through the looking glass four times in those 16 episodes, a full 25% of everything I've chosen for over a year. And I have to say, I think Hungary is going to be my new cinematic obsession with all of the things I've been reading and thinking about because of this. There will be at least two Hungarian films on my slate for the show in 2022. Oh, I can't wait. And also, Enyede has a film coming out that oh, we have to look forward right. to. The Story of My Wife. So, can't wait for that one. My wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, to sum up, it's about revolution on every level. Large and small, personal, political, sexual. I think we think about that word revolution so differently from a lot of the rest of the world. We are much further removed from our own revolution than a lot of places, except maybe our southern states, I guess, still maybe feel a little bit of that. But as all-encompassing as these ideas obviously are, is there a drawback to dealing with such concrete, life-altering ideas in such an abstract way, do you think? Do they lose some of their impact 
with the sometimes whimsical approach that she takes. Okay, I think we have to remember that revolutions are heady, confusing times. I just learned something new. Thank you, Lucy Worsley. The Russian Revolution started in February by female workers, not in October. Joseph Stalin had Lenin airbrushed out of photos. I mean, is it better for our understanding of events that Eisenstein made a film that obscures all of that? I think, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, that at least your personal sexual revolutions can be dealt with whimsically and not lose their power. Yeah, you can treat subjects a million different ways. But in this case, I think it raises these episodes to the level of parables. And I think that they are perfectly in line with Inyere's convictions, and I share her distrust of conventional wisdom and the way that it's handed down, whether that's in philosophy or filmmaking. It makes perfect sense to me the way she goes about this. And one last question, just based on this film, would you consider Inyere more a filmmaker or a visual artist? That's a difficult question. They're intertwined here. She came from the visual arts world. And it seems to me that filmmaking is just a beautiful, natural progression for her. I don't see how you could look at this piece of art and not think this was made by a filmmaker. I'm thinking specifically about the feeling of the ending. Two birds, sent off separately, making their way around space and time as our two characters have. Like the telegraph. And then our camera going from this narrow path into the great expanse. That's filmmaking. I mentioned the soundscape. You talked about the cinematography. I think about this purposeful use of overdubbing or non-synchronous sound, like the dialogue, and it seems like thought and reverie and life are all one. All worlds are one. I totally agree. I couldn't say it better myself. She always said that she worked on the borders of mainstream filmmaking, so I think... She felt like she was a little bit between both worlds as well. But you're right. When you see this, you can't think this is anything but a filmmaker. This is beyond installation. This is beyond museum project. This is meant to be seen and experienced and heard and shared on a big screen. So after experiencing the majesty of this, where should people go next? What's your recommendation? Well, I was inspired by this idea that I've had of the exposure of the Academy Awards. So I picked something that for me, I was very much aware of and could access from a young age. And that was The Unbearable Lightness of Being from 1998, just before this. It was directed by Philip Kaufman. He also co-wrote the screenplay, the adaptation of the novel by the same name, which I read after I saw the film. And it stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Juliette Binoche, and Lena Olin. So we've got a Brit, a French woman, and a Swedish woman. It was also my first Juliette Binoche and my first Lena Olin. And the film explores the characters as products of the Prague Spring and the effects of the communist repression that followed. Again, stuff that didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to. I also didn't realize until I was coming back to it that this was Sven Nykvist who did the cinematography. Now, I'm ready to return back to this one because... Kundera said afterwards that the film didn't capture the spirit of the novel or the characters, and he doesn't allow adaptations because of it. And like I said, I read the novel after I saw the film. I think I need to come back to both because it's been a huge expanse of time since then. I think this was one of those films that we've talked about before. I wasn't ready for it at the time that I saw it. So how about you? 
My choice this time is the Werkmeister Harmonies from 2000, and that's directed by Bela Tarr and Agnes Hranitsky. And it's based on the 1989 novel, the same year as our film here, The Melancholy of Resistance by Laszlo Krasnohorkai. And it stars Lars Rudolph, Peter Fitz, and Hannah Shagula, speaking of Fassbinder. It's about a mysterious traveling circus that excites a small Hungarian town into rebellion when a promised act doesn't perform. There are obviously a number of connections here that might make you want to check this out after my 20th century. It's another significant Hungarian film. I would argue among the most significant. I would put it on that top 12 list as well. It's also shot in luminous and perfect black and white. It looks incredible. It has a similar air of Eastern European magical realism and is more of a series of linked vignettes than a standard narrative. This one is shot in 39 extended takes. And that lets you really take your time and immerse yourself in the film. It even begins with an opening sequence in which celestial bodies figure prominently. It is far and away my favorite Belatar film. I know that there are others that may be considered more important or are more rigorous, but this is the one that best balances that formality with music and poetry. This one still has moments of severity, but it is mesmerizingly beautiful. With its episodic structure and its melancholy tone, you might also see a little Roy Anderson in there too. Think... Something Wicked This Way comes if Aki Kurismaki made it for an audience of Eastern Bloc philosophers. <laughs> it truly is one of my absolute favorite films, and we are definitely going to do it. It is one of those Hungarian films on the slate for next year. Terrific. So once again, that's two great recommendations, The Unbearable Lightness of Being and The Werkmeister Harmonies. And that brings us to the end of episode 155. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Spencer Seams at the Shoot the Piano Player podcast. Laura Cannon at the Fatal Femmes podcast. Scott Morris and the Fine Gentleman at Fuds on Film. Nicole Davis. Sarah Truesdale. James Greer. And Leanne Kubich. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find the show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us there. If you'd like to leave us a rating or a review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>